Good evening, good afternoon, and good morning. You're on the other side of midnight with Richard C. Hoagland, the home of alternative science. My name is Jonathan Womack. I'm the guest host for this evening, and my special guest is David Sarita. David has been a truth seeker from a very early age. He has a very long bio that you can read on the show page. And I'm going to tell you, uh, for the listeners out there, just how to get to the show page. You go to www.theothersideofmidnight.com, and you can either click on this show banner, or on the left, you'll see tonight's show. So that'll take you to the show page, and you'll see uh, the images there that David has brought for tonight's presentation, and you can read his bio, and um, yeah, it's all good. So I want to mention uh, just a quick disclaimer about tonight's program. Columbia, strike from above. And this is not intended to um, cast any aspirations on, um, you know, what, what happened or what was reported or anything like that. This show is about investigation and anomalies and responsibility because if we don't investigate anomalies then you know we're just not being responsible and uh you know we're all truth seekers here so um that's the the point of tonight's show is to investigate these these pictures that david has brought and to see if there's anything any correlation there between what happened and what was reported, and so forth. So with that said, uh, let's get underway here, and uh, I'm going to welcome David. How are you tonight, David? Welcome to the show. Good, John. I'm very, very good. And uh, I want to say first, in, in re- relationship to your disclaimer, that I've had this case on the Space Shuttle Columbia being struck by a possible ET weapon or possibly um, a secret military op weapon. I've had this case in my computer for many, many years. Um, it wasn't long after the incident that I was developing the case, and I've really scrutinized the data. And one thing I've learned in working for some of the best physicists in the world is that you look at all data. You, you don't omit data because it doesn't fit your theory you look at everything. And I'm going to show you how NASA did a very clean cover-up and omitted an enormous amount of data in this case so that they could sell the American public and the world a story that made it look like some type of natural accident. Yeah, and a lot of people will scoff at that, of course. Well, I also noticed because I tested it as a post on Facebook some months back, and there are certain people that get so upset Mm-hmm. That you challenge, the, and it's amazing how quickly people go on my Facebook wall and find a story. And people call them trolls. And if you enter certain keywords, there's a monitor on Facebook that immediately finds it, and they try to correct the story. And you know, I have so much more data than these people, um, these trolls on Facebook, and I have so much um, higher level access, as you're about to learn tonight, into the story. But I'm not merely relying on the internet. I have sources at MIT, sources at NASA, the Air Force, and I have public sources, publicly available sources. But first of all, do you remember that fateful day, February 1st, 2003, where you were when when this was happening? Yeah, I was home watching it on TV. Wow. So I was in Sedona, Arizona, giving a lecture on space shuttle UFOs at the Sedona Creative Life Center, and you could smell the, the burning of the, of the chemistry of, you know, whatever came down that day. And I have a friend that I interviewed. His name is George Moseman, and he was in Dallas that day with his lawyer in a skyscraper, and he was looking through his Zeiss binoculars, and he could see two flying saucers that were really beautiful colors. One was purple and one was kind of a, you know, a purpley bluish color. And, and, he, and he's looking at the UFOs and he's looking at 
the burning, you know, supposed shovel coming down. And he's like, what's going on here? You know, you know, what's real, what's the real truth? And in fact, I interviewed him and put him in my film from here to Andromeda, where I did an early segment on this incident. And in that segment, I didn't use real photographs. I had to use mock-up drawings because we, the story starts with this tourist from the UK named Peter Goldie, who's got his camera, his little Nikon, and he's taking pictures not of the incident as an accident. He's taking pictures of the shuttle coming back into the Earth's atmosphere. And, of course, accidentally, you know, he, he sees, you know, his, his photographs, and he gets a total of five photographs of this incoming streaking object coming from above that um, seems to be aimed at the space shuttle. And when it comes to the point where it should have hit the space shuttle, it, it, the space shuttle got ahead of it. It course corrects it literally 90 degrees, and it chases the shuttle and hits it. And, and what had happened, Peter Goldie was using a Nikon 880 camera. It's just a little camera on a tripod. It's not a fast shutter. It's a manual shutter. It doesn't have a motor drive. And what had happened is the San Francisco Chronicle actually published his photographs, one photograph, and told the story um, that astronaut Tammy Jernigan had taken his camera and took it to Lawrence Livermore, the, the Lawrence Livermore lab, and they tested the camera and the images, and they said it was an artifact of his camera. The, the incoming supposed lightning strike type thing was an artifact of the guy's camera. So like if he jerked his arm or moved the camera, kicked it or something like that? No, it was on a tripod. So well, like kicked the tripod know, or something. I mean, I'm a, I was a professional photographer, an award-winning photographer, and I know these cameras inside and out. I know how they work. I understand light and light physics and optics. And the first thing I said, well, you know, I don't know how this could have been an artifact of, of his camera, because when you look at the images, you're looking at um, something that is coming from outer space. I mean, the incoming corkscrews and comes down, and it's clearly coming from above. And the shuttle is doing about, I think, let me just double check my notes here, about 12,500 miles an hour on reentry. So you have to understand, you know, how fast that is. I mean, faster than the speeding bullet, actually. It's about um, two times the speed of sound. Here. Oh, no, no. It's, it's way more than that. The speed of sound is... Oh, or 700, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's right. Right, so you take yeah. um, 12,500 miles an hour divided by approximately 700 miles an hour at sea level. That's, you know, 18 times the speed of sound. And so when you see this incoming chasing the shuttle and, and you imagine he's pushing his shutter manually on this camera. And I know that camera. I've had one. I've, I have a lot of cameras and it, it doesn't, it takes several seconds to take two photos. So you take a photo, there's a reset, take a photo, then take a photo and then take a photo. So, you have to see, that at 12,500 miles an hour, you can't see that velocity close up. You can only see it from a distance because the speeding bullet coming out of the gun might be 1,500 miles an hour, and, and some munitions coming out of guns are, you know, go up to like 2,500 miles an hour. So you can imagine how fast the shuttle is doing. So what we're seeing is is clearly not an artifact of a camera. And then later, the San Francisco Chronicle, this, this took a long time. They erased the old article. You will not see the old article on online, the original article, because I found the link and it got removed by the San Francisco Chronicle. And then later they said it was a super lightning strike. Okay. Now, lightning, the speed that lightning strikes at is a third of the speed of light. So you take 186,282 miles per second divided by three, and 62,000 miles an hour is the speed of a lightning strike. And I've actually shot video on, on really good magnetic tape cameras, a Canon, you know, $12,000 video camera. And 
When you look at lightning strikes on magnetic tape cameras that are shooting 30 frames a second, you're, you're lucky to see the same strike on two frames. But so which means that the lightning strike, including the burn and the tracer of the burn on the atmosphere, won't last more than a 15th of a second. So Peter Goldie is not taking five images in a 15th of a second. He can't do that. So the nobody can. Nobody can take five images with a manual shutter of the same lightning strike. In fact, with a motor drive, you couldn't even get two because motor drives are not that fast. They're not fast enough to get two images of the same strike unless you have a super motor drive. But still, he's not using that. We know the camera he's using. And the camera he's using is so slow on the reset of the shutter that you've got at least three seconds between pictures. So, you know, three seconds times three photos of the incoming and then two af two photos after, that's, that's 15 seconds. There's no lightning strike that can last 15 seconds. Right. So what NASA does is they publish a story, and they have a website for this right now on the Space Shuttle Columbia, the analysis of the super lightning strike. They only show one photograph. And the reason they only show one photograph is because if they showed you all five, you would say that you would ask the same question I'm asking, is how does a photographer take five photographs of the same lightning strike? How does he take three with a manual shutter, little tiny little Nikon? This is not an SLR camera, single lens reflex. This is just a little digital pocket camera. So it's not capable of, of doing this. So they completely lied. So I did this report. I had Peter Goldie's photographs. He was furious that I even had his photographs because NASA you know, had confiscated his camera and they covered up the story. So when you look at you know, really good photographs of this incident, you say, okay, we believe the story because NASA published it, and this is what they said happened. But meanwhile, somebody at MIT, um, an a MIT alumni named Eric, um, uh, I'm not going to give his last name out. Yeah, just Eric. It's fine. Just Eric, and you saw the emails. You mm -hmm. know, yeah, I used to work there, and I, you know, I, I, I can almost remember him. Right, and Eric has actually been following my UFO research for years. Can you believe it? And hmm. he was in touch with me about the, um, the tether incident. And, and so we had a past a little bit of research history, you know, together. And, you know, the physicist that I worked for, Bogdan Maglitch, was an MIT physicist, nuclear fusion scientist. And he's the one who introduced me to Glenn Seaborg, who chaired the Atomic Energy Commission, and Albert Giorso, and Murray Gelman and Norman Rostocker, some of the most brilliant physicists in American history. And so basically what happens next is I get this email from him, and it looks like the Air Force and other people at NASA want to see my copies of Peter Goldie's photos because Tammy Jernigan won't give them the photos. Tell the listeners who Tammy Jernigan is. Tammy Jernigan is a former space shuttle astronaut. But she's also a um, – sorry, my kids are screaming in the background. I hope you um, see. <laughs> Tammy uh, Jernigan is a former space shuttle astronaut, but she's also uh, – she has a PhD in um, – I'm trying to know if it's physics or not. She attended Santa Fe High School, Santa Fe Springs, California. She graduated uh, Stanford University. She got a BS degree in physics, 1981, MS in electrical and engineering science from the University of California, Berkeley, So an MS in astronomy. And so she was working at the, at the lab, the, the Lawrence Livermore lab, where she took the camera. So Jernigan clearly was involved in the cover-up. She's why, I mean, when you look at the names on the email list, from Eric to me, mm -hmm. from MIT, and I'm going to name some of these people because they're government people. There, so therefore, they're public. You know, the public has the right to know who they are. And th these these emails 
where we want to see the Peter Goldie photographs, and we want to see David Sarita's report because my report details the speed of munitions, of missiles, that could have possibly caught up to the space shuttle and hit it if it, if it is a physical munition missile. And the only missile that can travel anywhere near that speed are our ICBMs. Like the Minuteman can do 18,000 miles an hour, and the space shuttle is doing 12,500. But the 18,000 miles an hour is still not fast enough. It's not fast enough because the incoming catches up to the shuttle in a matter of three or four seconds. And it's got to double at least at least four or five times its speed. And it's not, it's not possible for a missile to course correct and turn at 90 degrees at that speed. It can't do it. Well, I had read, somebody said that, um, you know, the uh, Israelis were monitoring, they were filming this, uh, the reentry with one of their spy satellites. And supposedly there is some video or some pictures floating around that show a missile striking the shuttle. That's one of the They would call it a missile, except that, except that you can see in the Peter Goldie photographs, it course corrects at that mm-hmm. speed. So let's say it's doing, you know, 60,000 miles an hour, you know, um, to, to catch up to it and turn in seconds and conquer an enormous distance. And I, I can actually calculate the distance that it conquered based on the photograph. Because once you have once you have a size and scale, you can calculate everything in a photograph. So, but what happens is Eric ends up sending me from MIT photographs taken by NASA's cameras at the Johnson Space Center of the same strike, which is purple, just like it is in the Peter Goldie's photographs, proving it's not an artifact of his camera and proving that Tammy Chernigan is a liar. She, she lied to the San Francisco Chronicle saying it was an artifact of his camera. Mm-hmm. Then they changed the story to being a super lightning strike. Well, it gets worse because when you look at this email list, and I'm going to name some of these people. I'm not going to name Eric's last name, but Sheila Wind Widnall at jsc.nasa.gov um, is one of the people on the list who wanted to see the Peter Goldie photographs from me. Um, Jim Smiley from NASA is another name. Um, William Burke at Hanscom Air Force Base <laughs> wanted to see the photograph. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, so I know that. Uh, we have Liz Fountain, Space Shuttle Vehicle Engineering Office. Um, we have, I'm just going down the list. And these, these emails were sent out in uh, 2003, three months after the incident. And so Hanscom military-based um, Air Force Base is, is, is all over this. And, and so and there's, there's a long list of people. I'm not going to name all of them. But I've got the, the most incredible photographs from NASA's own cameras. I don't know if you posted them on the site. Um, did you post those for people to see? Yes. And so well, they- in one of the photographs is probably pre-strike. You can see a very faint streak going from left to right in a white dot, which is supposedly the space shuttle. And I took that photo in Photoshop and bumped up its resolution and zoomed in on it. And it is one mysterious looking object. So remember, when we look at all the data, we have George Moseman is in Dallas, Texas, and he can see two UFOs um, through his ice binoculars very clearly saucer-shaped craft, and one of them is purple, and we see the purple incoming streak hitting the shuttle clearly on the NASA confirming photography, right? And we we know that a missile could not survive the speeds to catch up to the shuttle, the enormous distance it has to chase the shuttle, and course threat. You can't turn a missile at 18,000 miles an hour at 90 degrees. And you can right. see a 90-degree turn. Mm-hmm. The only thing that we know of that can make sharp angular turns like that, the only data we have from eyewitnesses are in the realm of UFOs. And that's because they seem to operate outside of the realm of inertia 
of inertial mass of the the realm of of um, g forces. So, mm-hmm. if you imagine a a pilot inside of a craft turning at ninety degrees at sixty thousand miles an hour, the the pilot would liquefy against the wall of the vehicle, and the structure of our aircraft would crumble in on itself on a turn like that, just the turn. So when, for example, when the, the New York Times ran this story about the Tic Tac UFO that was, you know, they, they filmed it on the flare cameras off the coast of um, Baja, California and San Diego. The story made headlines over the world. When you look at the way this thing operated, the way it could drop from 80,000 feet and stop on a dime just a short distance above the ocean um, water, a, a sudden stop from a drop that quickly in a matter of seconds from 80,000 feet would crush any physical pilot that we know of unless you're using a technology that cancels out inertia and mass completely. Mm-hmm. So that the, the effects of mass in relationship to gravity are basically at zero. The only thing that can make a right angle turn like that is, is a zero mass particle of light. It can reflect off a surface and make an, an angular turn. But as soon as you have mass, you can't turn at high velocity like that. I mean, you can make a slow, slow arcing turn, but you can't make a sudden turn. When you look at the Peter Goldie photograph, you see the sudden turn. Now, the camera that's looking, um, showing the strike from NASA's own photography um, from the Johnson Space Center um, is showing it from a different angle, but clearly shows the incoming is coming from above. And that means that the location of the incoming weapon or craft is not earthbound. It's clearly, could it be coming from a satellite? Um, that's question that, that begs an answer. Could, could this have been a demonstration of a super weapons test? to demonstrate to the military that we have the capacity to take out a spacecraft. Would a particle beam act that way? No, see, a particle beam and all beam weapons. Um, Boyd Bushman was a very good friend of mine at Lockheed Martin, and he's actually the father of, the, of the, what he called the Red Eye, which became the Stinger missile. And the Red Eye was the, you know, the early days heat-sinking missiles that could chase a, a heat signature, and therefore they were – they're pretty good at making amazing turns. Um, and the Stinger can make incredible turns. But the velocity on those, I have it here. Let's see. Where where are the velocities on, um, on uh, weapons like that? Let's see. Ludicrous speed. ICBM can do – they can do 15,000 miles an hour, and I've read some of ours can do – the Trident can do 18,000. Yep, there's the, the British Warheads, Navy Vanguard class, um, speed 18,000 miles an hour. These new Russian super missiles, which can fly inside the atmosphere, are not as fast as these – as those. But the shuttle's doing 12,500 miles an hour, and we look at – um, the Minuteman missile, 15,000. Tridents can do 18,000. Let me see here. Uh, where's my data here? On the, the Minuteman missiles are way down there. They're, they're like in the 700-mile-an-hour range. They're, they're nowhere near the velocity of whatever is chasing the space shuttle. This, this thing is doing five, six times the velocity of the shuttle. I mean, you're, you're past... You're at 60,000 miles an hour, and there's no, there's no munition that the Russians have. There's nothing that we have that can go that fast. So we know it's a munition because if it were a beam weapon, um, <clears throat> beam weapons don't leave tracers. They don't leave like a smoke tracer. Um, a laser is instantaneous, um, and it, it, it doesn't corkscrew. You see the way this thing is corkscrewing down? Um and then the most disturbing thing is, okay, when we eliminate the possibility of it being any munition-type weapon that we develop, and it's not a kinetic weapon, which transfers a huge 
uh, amount of energy to its target and electrifies the target because that's still a munition. Um, you're, you're really looking at something that can't be from Earth. It just simply can't. And I think that may be one of the reasons why this got classified and covered up by NASA because they, they knew that there was no way it's, it's, it's a munition from anywhere on Earth. They made up the story of super lightning and only published one photo so that nobody would use their head and realize the speed of, uh, the speed of uh, lightning is a third of the speed of light. So 60,000 60, miles an hour. So, um, no, miles a second, 60,000 miles a second. And meteorites come in at, you know, they might top at 45,000 miles an hour. So could it have been a meteorite cord screwing in? Well, a meteorite doesn't turn at 90 degrees and then chase the shuttle and then hit it when the shuttle's already passed where it was heading. And so I had one listener who said um, it's Sprite lightning. Yeah, the sprites are the, the, the super lightning. And no, because they, they don't last for, you know, five seconds. Mm-hmm. Sprites are super fast. You've got to have your shutter. See, the way you photograph lightning is you leave your shutter open on your camera in the dark. And the, the digital plane or the film plane won't expose until there's light. And then it will leave a streak, right? It, it's photographing the tracer. So the sprites are, no. There's, and they use, if you look at pictures of sprites, they have hundreds of little tentacles coming off of the main spark. And they're usually red. Um, some of them are green, but what we're looking at is purple. And so, um, and it's a single, it's a single um, tentacle that spirals corkscrews, and he's getting five photographs of it. So you, again, you can't take five photographs of a sprite. What is the sprite. significance of, or is there any significance of the color of this beam or whatever it is? Well, the significance, of course, with light, the higher the color spectrum, the higher the temperature and the energy. So red light has less energy and temperature than blue light, and purple light has higher temperature and energy than blue light. So um, lightning strikes tend to be white and maybe a little bit of yellow. Um, They're not purple and blue in Mm -hmm. no way. And and sprites, I've never seen a purple sprite. I've looked at a lot of photographs of them because that was one of the arguments. And again, they travel at a third of the speed of light. They're the same as lightning. And so therefore they're they're not a, they're not a candidate. And and again, NASA sold the story of the sprites and the super lightning and only showed one of Peter Goldie's photographs and they never published the photographs that I've given you uh, from NASA's own cameras of the event. And, and you, you say you have some data from um, cameras in Europe that say a missile struck the shuttle. So, so when we look at all of our data, we have an eyewitness in Dallas who saw two UFOs, one of them purple, that matches the color of the incoming. We have also um, the data of NASA's own cameras, which I've revealed the photographs for the first time on any radio show in the world tonight. And we have the uh, images from Peter Goldie's camera in San Francisco, the tourists. So we have so much data that says that this is a deep cover-up. The question is, <clears throat> was it? Now, when we zoom in. Now, hold um, on, David, because yeah. we're coming up to a break. So um, we have all this data. So when we come back, let's pick up there. And uh, I'm going to open up the phone lines. So... This is The Other Side of Midnight with Richard C. Hoagland, and we will be back. The 
other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Listening to the other side of midnight with Richard C. Hoagland. My name is Jonathan. I'm guest hosting tonight, and my guest is David Sarita. And um, David was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Born into a family of five boys, being the second eldest. His father, Dr. Lynn Sarita, Ph.D. in educational psychology from UC Berkeley, California, was dedicated to his children's spiritual growth. His influence on David is one of the greatest driving forces behind what he does. His mother, Linda Trafford, was a carpenter, artist, and family lawyer in California. And that's one of the things I like about David is that, um, you know, his impetus comes from a a spiritual seeking, uh, you know, learning the truth. And um, he, he gets into the science from that. He's... But that's what drives him is uh, his spiritual core to find answers to these anomalies. So um, that certainly was true with his tether incident analysis from years ago. That's when I first learned of David. And I I told him I was clapping and cheering when I watched that because (laughs) I was so glad that somebody else got it and was putting it out there. And I just love that, that analysis. So. Um, let's go back to what we were talking about before the break, which was all the data that David has collected thus far and where that's going to take us. So, um, and the phone lines are open if uh, you want to call in. Uh, the name of tonight's show is Columbia Strike from Above. So, David, you want to pick it up where you left off before the break? Yeah, I mean, Strike from Above is it. You know, it. It doesn't match any weapon we know of. Um, Boyd Bushman showed me at Lockheed Martin, senior scientist there of over 20 years. He worked for Texas Instruments, the Shah of Iran, and um, McDonnell Douglas, and many defense contractors. And he was he was a weapon scientist as well as a an explorer of anti gravity and advanced propulsion techniques. And I'm very aware of some weapons that we have in our arsenal that are quite Star Wars, you know, very, very, very Star Wars. One time I got hired for the day to work at Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, and that's a very secure lab. And I went in there to help somebody work on a a manual brochure on how to operate a handheld laser uh, weapon that looked like an M16, but it was not a theoretical weapon. It was a weapon we have that you can fire a very high temperature laser at a target with a handheld munition. But again, a laser, you know, would, you know, would not be, it wouldn't corkscrew the way this weapon would, and it would be instantaneous because the speed of light over short distances is instantaneous as well as pretty much a third of the speed of light is, you know, to the eye, it's instantaneous. And, you know, you can't take pictures of something moving at that speed. The other thing, David, isn't, isn't it true that the earth, the ground and the sky are charged and lightning actually doesn't come down and hit the ground? It reaches up from the ground and it reaches down from the sky and they, 
they meet in the middle. Is that right? Right. The, the charge comes from the ground, and it sets up a, the, the path. Mm-hmm. And then the strike appears to move down where the charge has already occurred. So it, it's a two-step process. Mm-hmm. Right? So the... The, the height of the shuttle when it's entering the Earth's atmosphere in the upper atmosphere is also way out of the range of clouds and, and that type of lightning, which is why they, they call it super lightning or sprites, uh, which is a form of really high altitude lightning. But, but sprites, you know, it doesn't match at all. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at all of the data, you know, you're left with, you're left dumbfounded because we don't know of any weapons that behave like this, and we don't know of anything physical that can turn on a dime at 60,000 miles an hour. And we don't have any meteorites um, that, because you can think of a meteorite coming in, even a small meteorite. And of course, meteorites burn when they hit the atmosphere and they slow down. But speed might be twice that of the space shuttle. And the, the odds of a meteor corkscrewing in and then deflecting off of something and turning and then hitting the space shuttle is pie in the sky. Like, there's no way that's what we're looking at either. Mm-hmm. So you have to draw the conclusion that this is either a classified weapons test or it's ET. And why would an ET want to take off the space shuttle? Well, this is where... For me, the investigation got the most disturbing is when I looked at the image, which I sent you, of the close-ups. The close-ups, what I called, um, when I zoom in on the, the white dot, which is the shuttle streaking from left to right, and the very faint vapor trail or burn trail behind it. This is before the strike. Mm-hmm. And as I look at this image... Um, it doesn't look anything like the space shuttle. In fact, it has some blue kind of corona light around it that match George Moseman's description of the UFO he saw in Dallas. There's a little bit of purple. It looks like a wavy piece of... I mean, I've seen UFOs that look like this. This, this is not a lenticular saucer shape. But to me, I tried to imagine, is this the space shuttle with both of the cargo bay doors open um is it possible that's what i'm looking at it's, it's possible although it doesn't look like that i've looked at uh, many nasa photographs of what the columbia and, and other shuttles look like when they're entering the earth's atmosphere and these cameras they're using at the johnson space center are phenomenal super massive lenses on them and and this image i'm looking at is pre-strike um, I can't say that I can match this to what the space shuttle looks like. And that opens up a realm of possibilities that is the most disturbing. And that is that the space shuttle never got hit. And this is some other object that came in that might have been some type of um, practice target. And this was a demonstration of a super weapon and that we were demonstrating. And we hit the target and the target blew up and scattered into pieces and burned and entered the Earth's atmosphere. One thing that occurred to me was, if it is ETs, it doesn't have to be diabolical. It could be they know what's about to happen, and it's a teleportation beam. I mean, they can beam folks around, I think, uh, the galaxy pretty quickly with a beam of light, kind of like Star Trek. And uh, that's just one thing that occurred to me is um, they were teleporting the, the folks out of there before. Well, the what's interesting about that thought, Jonathan, is that I did a show with either Art Bell or George Norrie, and we were talking about the Space Shuttle Columbia. And I had already had some of my data, but I, I didn't have these photographs during that show. And a woman had called in, and she didn't even know that the space shuttle had come down. And she had a dream of this golden beam of light coming into the space shuttle and removing all the astronauts before Hmm. it got struck. Wow. And is it possible, this close-up that I have of the white dot, which is very clearly a waving kind of structure, is not even the Columbia. It's actually the UFO that took out the Columbia, or maybe took out the passengers. But then you have to get into the DNA. Did they find the DNA from the bodies? You know, um, everything would have incinerated. 
and mm. all of the pieces of the shuttle that were lying on the ground that they collected um, in the past um, would have contained some some physical remains. And if that's if that's true, if they found physical remains, I mean, but when you're talking about a cover-up this big, I mean, this is a cover-up. And, and I know Tammy Jernigan lied. I know she knows it wasn't an artifact of the guy's camera because she had the San Francisco Chronicle change the story to super lightning strike or, or sprite, right? So the, the fact that when we look at all the data, and I believe there are some good remote viewers who have given me data that the shuttle was definitely taken out, hmm. but I, I, with it, by a weapon. And you're saying you have some data from a cameras in Europe that showed a missile hitting. I mean, when they say missile, they just mean munitions. But hmm. there's there's no missile that can behave like this. And when you look at the the NASA confirming photos of the incoming, there's there's more jagged edges in the path of the purple incoming because their cameras are better. Peter Goldie's camera couldn't see that fine resolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you look at those images, you see a lot of little jagged lines. So this thing is vibrating. It's coming in vibrating and moving in a waveform. But it's it's a physical munition because if it were a beam, it would it would hit it at the speed of light. It wouldn't need to chase it because yeah. you know it, it's the shuttle's moving too slow for an instantaneous weapon. And Bushman showed me a beam weapon that is beyond the test of death rate. It's beyond the Tesla death rate. And he showed me tests of this weapon that we have at Lockheed that I wonder if President Trump even knows about this weapon. I know all about this weapon, and I know how it works. And this thing can take out anything. It actually disassembles the matter at the molecular scale. It's, it's a type of beam that removes the dual charge on the dipoles in the way molecules bond like they but they bond like magnets positive negative positive negative charge and you know you have your valence electron on the outside of the of the, of the electron orbiting shells around the nucleus of the atom and they all bond and this weapon takes apart the bond and they said they literally pointed it at a dog and the dog vaporized they pointed it at a car engine running in a parking lot, and the whole the whole car just vanished. I can't believe they'd aim it at a dog. Well, see, when I told that story about the dog, I mean, <laughs> you're, you know, the dog probably didn't even know what happened. It probably went to doggy heaven so quick because he was gone in a nanosecond, a billionth of a second. <laughs> He's gone. Oh, my God. So, but the point is, I've seen this weapon i've actually seen the patent filing on this weapon and i've had a demonstration of this thing and it if we were in serious serious trouble from china believe me lockheed will pull these things out the the, the handheld laser guns that i saw at uh, rand corporation and they'll pull out this it's way beyond the Tesla death rate. It can shoot down a nuclear missile. The Russians send us a missile. It'll be gone in seconds. And that's probably why, because we can start getting into Reagan's speech on Star Wars and the need to weaponize space and, and Trump's new um, space, you know, um, the new um, division. Space Force. The Space Force. Because with Russia's new super fast missiles, all we need to do is set up these type of weapons on satellites. And, and you can see a rush to launch a missile, and, and it'll be out of the sky in a second. In a now, second. what about people that would say this is HARP, and they, they sprayed heavily uh, along the course of reentry? Um, you know, they, you see them spraying the sky all the time. It's like barium and chromium, I believe, is two of the most common uh, particles in there. And um, so they bounce this off of the you know, the, the spray that they, the plane spray up by the ionosphere and that allowed them to bounce this heart beam around and, it's and not get a beam, the because It would be instantaneous. No, heart is a very old weapon. It's, I've seen things in Alaska, in the mountains away from Nome, Alaska, that make heart look like some piece of junk. I mean, they, 
they have massive coil weapons. I found them on, on um, Google Earth, but all those sites have been erased. I found them many, many years ago. And so we're way beyond HARP. HARP is very old technology and bouncing beams off the ionosphere and reflecting it down to a target. I mean, one of the things I did years ago when I worked for these physicists, I, I was in India with the Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama just knew you have to have a meeting with this certain person. And this person gave me maps of nuclear bases in Tibet that the Tibetans had mapped on foot. And when I got home from India, I showed them to Magwitch. Magwitch said, um, I know someone in the Pentagon. His name is Chris Harmel, who is a China war games expert at the Pentagon. So I called up Chris Harmel at the Pentagon, faxed him the maps. Um, and he said, you know, we've been looking for these for years. We, we can't, we have no ability to um, take aerial photography of underground nuclear um, bases in the Himalayas because the, because of the rocks. And that was one of the purposes of HARP was to, was to send intense energy um, photography on certain targets in the Himalayas. And he said, you're handing me these maps and we don't, we've, we've been trying to find these bases for years. Well, how did the Dalai Lama know to give me the maps? And then I give them to the Pentagon China war games expert. And he looked at him and said, thanks so much. You have no idea how long we've been trying to find these things. Because the Chinese, one of the reasons they took Tibet is because they, they, it, it was a perfect location to launch nuclear weapons, you know, into the, into the world because of the mm. high altitude and the, the secrecy on the caverns and the caves in the, in the mountainous regions. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Tibet also has the best uranium in the world. I mean, you can't beat the quality of their uranium. And that was another reason for the Chinese to take Tibet. But the point is, we, we have weapons that will make all incoming ICBMs, it will disable them in seconds. As soon as they're seen, and that's why they want to mount uh, weapons on satellites. And, and just, we don't need faster missiles. We just need the ability to mount these weapons. So that, that begs the question, was the Columbia a sacrifice? to a weapons test that the Department of Defense was merely demonstrating that day, or is it ET? And, and a lot of the ways we arrive at ET is because we don't know anything that can operate like that. Mm. The only thing that can operate the way the incoming is hitting the Columbia is the way the Tic Tac performed, the Tic Tac UFO performed for these, these Navy pilots who were chasing it. There's, and there's nothing else that can move like that. So the question is, who has it? Is it really ETs? And is it that the gods of the old world are alive and well? You know, Zeus and Indra probably are the same person who have the super lightning bolt weapon. And, and are, are they flying in craft around the earth? And was this a demonstration? Was Columbia carrying a payload, a military payload? Because the shuttle carries military payloads into space. It always has. I've researched. They have classified parts of their mission, and they have um, scientific experiments that are publicized as part of their mission. But they always have a classified part of their mission. And mm -hmm. were they going to put up a weapon in space? And did ETs take it down? Um, you can't know. You can't know. The only thing we can know is it. this weapon is operating the same way high-speed turn UFOs operate, which we, we, we know from my early investigations into the NASA UFO and the Tether incident, mm. that we were seeing things that could make high-speed turns. We were seeing, I mean, in fact, Hoagland, I remember when the, some of the early STS photography came out from Jack Kasher showing those, um, those flashes, and then all of a sudden an object goes streaking by at amazing speed. Mm -hmm. um, some of that photography shows objects that are moving at incredible speeds that could match whatever is incoming to hit the shuttle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You watch the uh, the NASA um, footage on YouTube, and you see these things streaking around the planet like whew, incredible speed. That there's nothing we have even close to that. 
oh yeah, look at those speeds. Like again, the further you get away from a high velocity object, you can actually see it moving at thousands of miles an hour. The same way you can watch a meteor streaking by at thirty, forty thousand miles an hour. Um, you know, some of them slower, some of them faster. So you you can clearly see that the space shuttle cameras, as I pointed out years ago, were special um, CCD sensors that I confirmed with Joseph Newton III at NASA Astrochemistry Branch, that they were able to see near and far ultraviolet light, which human eyes can't see, and ordinary cameras cannot see. So, you know, these, the mystery to me is, is there a war over our planet that has been building um, are the gods of the ancient world still alive and well, and do they occupy the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, and do they have plans of reoccupying Earth? Um, do they live in higher worlds that are so much better than ours that they're not even interested in ours? But when I see a weapon strike like this on the Columbia, I, ha I have to say, in the end, I don't believe, except for the alternative space program, that we have weapons that can behave like this. So why would, if, if it's a, a secret government-controlled space program, what would their motive be to take out the space shuttle Columbia? And that's just plain old stupid. What do you think Tammy Jernigan's reason was for... Oh, I think she knows the truth. I think she's smart enough to know the truth, that there's no way that super light. I think she had to cover it up. Now, let's go back, because we were talking before the show with Kinthia about um, when I grew up in Berkeley in 1968, I was seven years old, and I'm on my way home from Cornell Elementary School and one day, and there's, I'm, I think I'm walking home with my friend, and we're noticing this pandemonium on the screen. Everybody's pointing up, looking at this flying saucer hovering there, you know, which would have been very visible. It was a very perfectly clear sunny day. And, you know, this is school year time that, I'm, that it's happening. I don't know what time of the year it is, but it's not when you get the Berkeley fog, you know, it, this is a sunny day. And, you know, I, I built model airplanes as a kid, you know, I built model cars. I saw the Goodyear blimp pass by. Now, this wasn't the Goodyear blimp. This was a flying saucer. And this is 1968, which is pre- you know, UFO conference era, you know, there, this wasn't when you had all these UFO conferences everywhere. And we watched this thing for a full 20 minutes and there's just pandemonium. Everyone's knocking on neighbor's doors, get outside. You got to see this thing. And you're seeing this flying saucer hovering in the sky. And it raised that moment in my life. My mom and dad were divorcing. We moved to a new house in the Berkeley Hills. And in the following weeks, the I would fall asleep and I would become paralyzed, like sleep paralysis. And it was terrifying for me as a little kid to be in the middle of a divorce with my my brothers and having these experiences. But these ETs would appear. They showed me Pleiades. They didn't call it Pleiades. They told me that's where they were from. They showed me these counter-rotational um, magnetic fields inside the, the drive of the craft. They were trying to show me how their craft worked. They were very human looking and um, very tall, Nordic. And they're very kind. They didn't probe me or anything like that. But the experiences kept happening. And one night we had a babysitter and I went into a sleep paralysis and then I finally got into my body and I just screamed. And I remember she came running and, you know, I didn't know who to talk to. I watched Star Trek after school in the late 60s, and I watched My Favorite Martian, and that was my only way to relate to my experience. Lost in Space. Lost in Space. Uh, when did that start? <laughs> I watched all those shows. <laughs> so that was my only, like, in fact, I remember when we were looking at the UFO, my friend and I, and we're saying, look, it's the, it's the USS Enterprise. Like, um, so like, when did Star Trek start? Was it 68? Let's see. When 66. Was the, 66. So it could, the UFO could have been 67 or 68. Now, 
years later, decades later, I'm working for a physicist named Bogdan um, Maglitz, who has, you know, developed a form of nuclear, non-radioactive nuclear energy. It caught the interest of Glenn Seaborg, and Seaborg was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission under Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And they were having lunch at the Berkeley lab and the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab up on the hill. And from up on the hill, you can see the Berkeley campus. You can see, you know, Albany, where the, the university village where I saw the UFO. And I'm telling him and his assistant, Albert Giorso, two of the most brilliant physicists in American history. And and Seaborg, you know, we were talking about fusion, and Maglitz is just looking at me because, you know, I worked with Maglitz, and he's like, why are you telling them about the UFO? And Seaborg wanted to know everything. And I know that lab had perfect visibility. This craft was visible for a full 20 minutes. There were no helicopters. There were no fighter jets intercepting. There, There's no doubt in my mind that somebody at the lab would have taken pictures. And Seaborg's answer was, with 37 levels above top secret, that he said, if, if we had anti-gravity, we wouldn't even need to pursue nuclear fusion because he said anti-gravity is a power source that is so far beyond nuclear fusion, so far beyond it, that we don't even need to pursue it. And, and then years later, I was lecturing at a UFO conference, and a man came up to me, and he said, I worked at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in the space lab up on the hill, and in 1972, we all saw a flying saucer outside the window. And that means they took pictures of it, right? So that's only 68 to 72, you know, 68 to 9, 71, four years later. And that's the time of the Meyer, the Billy Meyer incident, when the Palladian crafts were appearing to Meyer. And he started, you know, mm. getting photos out to the world. And it's the same craft. I mean, the craft I saw would match some of his photographs. It was very smooth, no rivets, um, lenticular, double lenticular, a little dome on the top, um, no markings. Um, we pretended you could see USS Enterprise, but you couldn't. And probably the metal was tungsten. I matched the, the color of the metal. Um, it wasn't steel, wasn't aluminum. It was probably something like tungsten um, or titanium. And it... Um, you know, it, it's it's. I've replayed it so many times in my mind. I can remember the UFO better than a lot of other things that happened to me in my life. And then the following experiences, clarifying that they were Palladian. You know, it. You, you don't know how to relate to that as a kid, and you can't talk to your mom and your dad. And I tried, and and I didn't get anywhere. Yeah. And my brothers, like, what can I tell you? I saw a flying saucer today, and. They don't even know what to think of it. They're, we're just little kids, right? Hmm. So when you go on to the idea that that they saw a spacecraft outside the window at the Berkeley lab in 72 at the time of the Meyer you know, sightings, it's very possible during periods of history there are certain star systems that, that make visits to Earth, and they check us out for a while, and then they leave. And mm. then maybe another star system, you know, checks this out. Yeah, if you live outside of time, uh, normal space-time, mm -hmm. you can choose what period of Earth history or Earth future you want to visit. So, mm -hmm. like you said before, the old gods of old, those gods, I mean, to them, it was just yesterday that they were building, you know, the pyramids were being built or something, you know, it, yeah. it just happened a very short time ago, not like thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, when, uh, when I was in India... The oh, we got to go to a break, David. Hold that. Yeah, right. uh, uh, let's see. You are listening to the other side of midnight. We're going to take a short break here, and we will be back with Mr. David Sarita. <laughs>
Anybody in the alternative field, you can hear this all the time. You can see it in um, communications all the time with, with the researchers. It, it's really tough to keep going, keep this stuff afloat. It's not mainstream yet, although it's getting there. And we'll talk about some of that tonight, but it is tough. And I want you guys out there, those new listeners that are coming in, those that are going to come throughout the night, which I will mention is, is to think about very much joining Club 19.5. Now, what it gives you access to is all of the broadcasts that Richard has done since, I believe, 2015 um, up until now. And there's been a few of us guest hosts that have come in and helped out when, when, we've, you know, when he's needed us, you know, et cetera. And that's not only that, but you get perks that, will, that we've started and we're going to do more just to keep it on the air. In Richard's case, he's a researcher and he comes in twice a week working on this show and right now he needs a bit of time for himself so that's one thing I want you to think about another one is the donate button it's on the homepage um, the other side of minute.com it's on the homepage you can find it there please in your hearts think about a contribution whatever you can manage would be so helpful you can find the button also on each page on the left hand column um, it's, it's at the top and if you're using your phone you should be able to find that on your navigation Thank you. 